Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August 15th, 2023, a Tuesday, the middle of the slowest month of the year, a, a long, hot August, hopefully not quite as hot as July 2023. And of course, the summer when it comes to movies has been dominated by two films, Oppenheimer and Barbie. And we've done shows both on Oppenheimer and Barbie with my guest, Olivia Rattigliano, who is the uh, film critic of Lit Hub, where this show um, is distributed. Uh, but we're not talking Oppenheimer today and we're not talking Barbie, something completely different, to borrow some language from Monty Python. Um, this film uh, has been re-released. It's a 1963 movie. It's called Le Mépris, uh, Contempt, by the great French uh, movie director Jean-Luc Godard. It's back in the movie theater. Uh, it's a magnificent film featuring Brigitte Bardot, um, and it's just been restored in 4K, and I'm thrilled that um, Olivia has seen the film, so she's here to discuss it. It's hard, Olivia, not to think of this movie, Le, Le Mepris, in the context of uh, Barbie. Can we separate the two? Are they the same films in a sense? That's such an interesting question. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Although your framing is Oppenheimer, Barbie, and Contempt. It's the summer of all three did tip me off slightly. It's a very interesting movie. I think I mean, contempt is is so much about the process of making a movie and the attempt to make a film with integrity. It's about a, a playwright who's who becomes a screenwriter who is involved in this large scale adaptation of the Odyssey. He's commissioned to write it. And the, the production is sort of torn between the efforts from the celebrated European film director, Fritz Lang, who plays himself, and um, a crude American producer played by Jack Palance named Jerry. Um, and it's about um, what movies can and cannot capture. And at the same time, it is a story about Paul's relationship with his wife, Camille, who's played by Brigitte Bardot, um, as you know, she believes that he has um, sort of sort of sold out and her um, impression of him has sort of changed. And it's about their um, relationship moving from a place of frustration to one of, shall we say, contempt. I think Barbie is a film that is very, very much invested in the movie making process, even though it isn't so obvious um, narratively. The movie is a is an homage to um, sweeping large scale musicals. And many of the films that inspired Barbie were, in fact, like golden age musicals from Singing in the Rain to An American in Paris to The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And Barbie is an incredible triumph for its managed to marry um, practical filmmaking um, uh, in, a, in a very artistic sense with um, highbrow concepts, but also, uh, shall we say, corporate interests and um, a production um, coffer that comes from um, a corporate entity in uh, less interested in making an artistic film than a big budget 
um, mass market success. And so in that way, I think the films are very much alike because they're both yeah. the integrity of movies versus commercial interests. And they're both films with tongue in cheek about the real world. The, the Barbie movie uh, even has this image of real world this way. It's all about a doll who goes into the real world and her cultural confusion and emotional uh, result of all that. Um, Le, Le Mepris is also a, a film which plays around with the idea of reality. The beginning of the film, which many consider one of the great masterpieces in world cinema, the first 90 seconds, 120 seconds, um, is itself a kind of tongue-in-cheek tongue homage to the real world. It's, it, perhaps you might explain how we're introduced, how, how we get into the movie in the beginning in Le, Le Mepris. Olivia, I'm, uh, I lost the sound here. I'm not sure whether you switched. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, the opening of Contempt is so fascinating because it's it's extremely meta and, you know, it's pre-meta in the sense that I don't know that the term was used at all then um, in 1963. But the film opens actually on the back lot of um, Cinecita Studios in Rome, um, where the filmmaker of the film, um, Roel Coutard, is actually operating a camera that is capturing actors as they walk um, down a street in the studio towards the camera. And there's a slow, <clears throat> there's a slow um, creeping um, of a fascinating tracking shot. And slowly as the, the crew grows closer to the camera, there's a narration explaining the, um, the names and the exact roles of the people participating. And then the camera zooms in on Raul Coutard himself operating the camera, framing the film as um, an investigation into um, the concept of movies specifically. And then it then, then there's a quote from Andre Bazin, the film scholar and critic um, with, um, with whom Godard um, studied and established um, the Cahiers de Cinema. Um, and I have the quote right here. The cinema um, substitutes for our gaze a world more in harmony with our desires, um, a, a world more in harmony. I'm so sorry, I'm just I scrolled substitutes a world more in harmony with our desires. Um, so it's very much about the relationship between our imagination and reality. And the film, the, the film itself has a complicated history that also plays with the relationship between imagination and reality and, and audience expectation. Um, because the film was advertised as a giant budget cinemascope production shot in beautiful seaside Italy, starring American star Jack Palance and French star Brigitte Bardot. And basically everyone thought it was going to be this um, mainstream masterpiece. And instead, it's an investigation into... Um, the things that film conceals about reality, which includes the actual making of movies and the compromise between artistic integrity and financial concerns, and also the disintegration of a real life marriage. And the film's whole second act spotlights um, the, the, the couple, Paul and Camille, as their relationship um, moves literally um, through their apartment in the normal ways they behave 
they go to the bathroom, they try on wigs, they, you know, snap at each other, they open Coke bottles. Like it's, it's, it's nothing grandiose. It's nothing exciting, but it is real. And that is uh, reflected in the opening of the scene as well. One of the things that struck me, I, I saw the film a couple of weeks ago at the Alamo, my favorite cinema in San Francisco. One of the things that struck me is the dissonance between the meta themes in, in the movie, the fact that it, the, the movie from the beginning acknowledges that it's a movie and the music, the music is terribly heavy and serious. And I wonder whether that resonated with you and, and, and what we should make of it. What was he trying to do with that music? That's a great question. I think um, the fun of Contempt is that it's a movie that promises to be about the making of a movie about the Odyssey, which is, you know, mankind's greatest epic and, you know, a, a nearly impossible story to render on film. And yet it becomes a relationship about I'm sorry, it becomes a film about interpersonal relationships, specifically the kind of relationships we don't really see on on screen, which is the relationship between producer and director and writer, and also the relationship between husband and wife in the most unexciting, gritty, realistic, even boring way possible. Um, there's nothing, you know, there aren't, there are a few explosive moments, but there's mostly simmering uh, tension between the two of them. It comes across in barbs, but also in genuine displays of affection and insecurity and vulnerability. And the fact that all of this, this extremely granular reality is represented with a score that seems to have been transposed from the Odyssey movie uh, that Paul and Fritz Lang and Jack Palance's character Jerry are trying to make seems to be... Um, Godard's commentary on what is actually more exciting about movies. Is it more exciting when it's able to tell um, stylized epics or is it more impactful, meaningful and exciting when cinema is able to capture the everyday drama um, that we all live with, but we never see rendered on screen? Godard, of course, is considered one of the great movie makers. It's interesting. We did another show um on uh, on um, Barbie uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Celeste um, Marcus, who's the managing editor of Liberty's Quarterly, the sponsor of the show, one of the sponsors. She was less sympathetic to uh, Gerwig and, and the movie. Are, are the things that Gerwig and um, uh, God are grappling with, are they the same in Barbie and... Um, and contempt, the idea that movies aren't for real and that we all know that and that they're finally telling the truth. I think there's a difference. I think they both are aware that movies are not real. But I think Greta Gerwig is more interested in the fact that women are real. And I don't know that women are real in the same way to Godard, um, especially because of, you know, his penchant for telling stories about beautiful women, impossibly beautiful women um, who are wearing full makeup and, and you know, have uh, Hollywood style hair and makeup treatments um, and representing them as sort of everyday women experiencing normal things. A film that captures um, the experiences of women on a, on a more sympathetic uh, level is, you know, this year's Sight and Sound poll winner, uh, Jean Delmont, um, Chantal Ackerman's film about um, female malaise and the sort of um, 
domestic torture of everyday life. Which just got voted the, by sight and sound the greatest movie of all time, which is probably a reflection of our own sensibilities rather than the yeah. movie itself. Um, and, and Contempt is a former Sight and Sound poll winner. So, um, and has been hailed, you know, the greatest film of all time. But it's also a film um, that's very much about um, a relationship, but without a sympathetic female perspective. I mean, the film is not a film that asks us to gawk at Bar Brigitte Bardot the way some of her other films may have done so but there are a lot of films of her you know uh, sorry a lot of shots of her taking off her clothes or laying on a shag rug naked and um there's certainly you know the beginning of the movie is is her feeling insecure about her body and and asking her husband to you know ex to tell her that she's beautiful etc etc and while Brigitte Bardot is, is gorgeous and the film is the go gorgeous and the framing of her is so artistic. I don't know that the film captures the actual interiority of female experiences the way Barbie does. When Barbie's, uh, Margot Robbie's Barbie character is, wa is going through Venice Beach and she has that beautiful long blonde hair and she's uh, skating um, down the street and she's very afraid by the fact that suddenly everyone is looking at her and Ken, her companion, says that everyone's looking at him, but it makes him feel admired. And she says that hers very much has an undertone of violence. And later she is, you know, she's hit on immediately. She punches someone in the nose. Then she goes to jail. The cops hit on her. Um, they like her spandex rollerblading outfit. So she changes clothes. She puts on more clothes, gets arrested. And then the same cops who are fingerprinting her um, like this outfit more because it's, you know, it's, it's more fun to imagine a striptease. She has more to take off that you can play with and that they can play with in their imaginations. And Godard's female characters um, played by his wife, Anna Karina and Brigitte Bardot and many others often do kind of strip teases for the audience. It's the films are very much about capturing this sort of idealized version of womanhood. Um, and I don't think Godard is too interested in, in penetrating um, the experience of womanhood beyond the perceived aesthetics of, um, shall we say like, titillating otherworldly beauty um and the suggestion that that beauty might be stripped away for us to reveal yeah i have to admit i'm not convinced of that i mean the character is quite independent she leaves her husband for another man which she is important up... it's important that she leaves him but she does leave him for another man and uh it would have been and she's yeah. bored with him and she makes it clear uh simone de beauvoir writing uh about uh Bardot in her 1959 essay, The Lolita Syndrome, mm -hmm. describes her as a locomotive of women's history. I assume that, you know, Godard and Sartre and, uh, uh, and de Beauvoir, they all knew each other. I assume that um, Godard was familiar with that essay and was using um, uh, Bardot in a, in a, in a, a radical way, whether it's the radical way that we think of radicalism today. Well, he did have to put in the scene with her um, being intimate with her husband because producers were very mad that there was no, there was not more of Bardo's body in the movie um, and causing him to complain. Haven't they ever seen a Godard film? Like it's not supposed to be an explosive por 
uh, portrait of a sex bot, you know, that, that is supposed to be sort of more deep and more nuanced. Um, at the same time, we do watch um, um, Camille get hit and abused by her husband in ways that are that are very difficult for us to watch. And while they might be period appropriate, um, seem to be um, handled less sympathetically than, say, Agnes Varda, one of Godard's female filmmaking contemporaries from the new wave might have been able to handle. Her film Cleo from five to seven, it's an amazing portrayal of the interiority of a woman who is extremely gorgeous um, and attracts gazes from and all over Paris and is originally content with her um, sort of sugar daddied, uh, slightly like vaguely professional existence, um, but grows to... um, develop an existential crisis and has more um, concerns about her relationship to reality than I think um, Bardo's Camille is given. I don't know. I think if Agnes Varda had been allowed to, to, to show up on set, I think things would have been a little more uh, satisfying in that regard, at least for me. Well, I want to take a break now. Short message from our sponsor, uh, Liberties Quarterly. And then we'll come back and we'll talk more about Bardot, feminism, and, of course, the great Jean-Luc Godard. So we'll be back in two seconds, everybody. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Excellent. That's libertiesjournal.com for those of you just listening. So let's come back, um, Olivia, to um, to this issue of, of the female in the movie. I, I, as I said, I can't help thinking of Bardo as a, a physical version of, of, of Barbie. Um, this issue of women in films, it occurs to me that Hitchcock uh, made his vertigo in 1958, another film about the female gaze and our obsession with female beauty. What is contempt doing in that sense, which is different from, say, vertigo did in 1958? Well, I will say that in a way that Hitchcock does not, um, Godard represents humiliation and exploitation at the hands of the cinema, sort of across the board. His, you know, screenwriter, director character is exploited, um, exploited, excuse me, is exploited intellectually, I mean, and falls in favor in, you know, his wife's regard. She does not want him to be a sellout and she is very disappointed. She prefers him when he's like writing, uh, Mm. you know, uh, cheap detective novels and that they were poor. Yeah. And he looks like a character, the Michel Piccoli. He looks like a character from a cheap detective novel. He never takes his hat off even when he's naked. Yeah, no, he keeps the hat on the whole time. Um, absolutely, and and so he's a you know he's a he's a character from another genre. He's an he's a he's a force who does not belong in this world of commercial movie making. Um, he might not even belong in the world of artistic movie making because he's not himself you know uh, writing you know the next great 
literary yeah, master. You could have been uh, Humphrey Bogart wandering into a French movie. <laughs> yeah, if if that. Um, so, but so the film does deal with humiliation and exploitation on the level of female experience in a way that does nicely dovetail with um, the the intellectual undermining that happens to Paul um, while he's being um, brought on for this project. Um, because we see, you know, Paul sort of being ruined by the film world turning into a kind of monster that causes his once loving and understanding wife not to know him anymore and to want to leave him. Um, and so the disintegration of their marriage is actually the result of film. And it's a result of cinema's um, exploitative and commercial natures as opposed to its artistic integrity. And so the, you know, the, the parallels between um, a domestic situation for women that is unsuitable and, or that becomes unsuitable or abusive um, and the humiliation that women are, are told they have to take um, sort of mirrors also the experience of many women who are working in Hollywood also. There's, a, there's a, an exploitation and a, and a fetishization of their bodies and um, there's, you know, their so-called feminine natures that um, commonly happens. And, and movies like Jean Delmon or, you know, Agnes Varda's Cleo de Saint-Cassette, you know, push back against that. But, but contempt is absolutely saying something about that. And in that way, it's very proto-feminist or even feminist because that term was in circulation at the time. Some people, of course, love the film, think of it as a classic. Uh, one review said uh, it reveals all that is possible with cinema. Godard famously, of course, suggested that uh, the films like this were the last kind of films to be made, and it was the end of cinema. But, it, but it's not, is it, um, uh, Olivia? I mean, great films have been made post-Godard. He may have thought that he was making the last films in the history of movies. We've got many, many great films made since 1963. What is it that he's putting to bed in this film? What, what, is, what is he closing the door on in the history of cinema, in your view? That's an excellent question. I think, well, Godard's entire legacy has been a pushback against mainstream Hollywood movies. And, you know, he and his, his compatriots... Um, Eric Romer, Claude Chabrol, Francois Truffaut, and the others um, who were responsible for the French New Wave, Alain Rosnay and, and others, um, absolutely were responding to splashy, impersonal Hollywood movies by making nitty-gritty, slow, highly personal, and extremely exquisite subjective movies about subjects who didn't normally get that kind of treatment. Contempt is, it's, a, it's an opening the door just as mo just as much as it's closing the door. It's, it's, it's a film that traffics in the trappings of studio movies, but still delivers a very esoteric Godardian point. Um, so in a way, he's sort of setting foot into mainstream Hollywood just as much as he's leaving it behind. But in terms of what he's closing the door on, um, I wonder if he has, you know, 
I think he's closing the door on on the myth of a certain kind of epic. The film is is the film within contempt is a retelling of the Odyssey. It's a reworking of the Odyssey, and I think that out of anything else shows cinema's hubris. The fact that um, there is this you know extraordinarily ancient venerated story that was originally transmitted via oral tradition and then was written down you know centuries and centuries into the like literary history of the world and it's it's impossible to turn into a movie i think there's something so hubristic about the fact that jack palance's character is trying to make a movie version of the odyssey and so i think in this way godard is attempting to close the door on the sort of insinuation that hollywood or film mainstream films can weigh in on great or adapt or take over great works of art that have no business being taken over and that are excellent um on their own. This is the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. This is a wonderful question and I'll, I'll be, I'll be considering it a lot, but if you have any ideas, I'd love to respond. Well, it seems as if the Odyssey as much as anything else is about exile, permanent exile of one kind or another. We actually talked about the Odyssey a couple of weeks ago in a show we did about Bruce Springsteen's uh, Nebraska, the making of it with Warren uh, uh, Zemon, who, who, who talked about uh, exile we've talked quite a lot about the ideal of home. Actually, we did it mm-hmm. with Eche Temelkuren over the weekend. There is no home. There is no center of Le Mepri. That's its tragedy. That's that probably yeah. from a, a spectator's point of view, from a consumer of this, it's also the frustration is there's nothing really there. There's no heart of it. There's no real story. They die in the end, but no one really seems to care. Uh, there's no, conventional narrative apart from a marriage disintegrating uh, it, it, and of course that re- re- relates i guess back to the odyssey and the idea of of exile how do you connect the notion of exile the tragedy of exile in the context of the odyssey and and the film itself they are all they all seem exiled i mean it it's yeah. a it is of course an existential film yeah. coming out of the existential culture of, of of the late 1950s and early 1960s in France. Mm. That's such a good point. Well, absolutely. I mean, the film, you know, Godard is always interested in, you know, to, not to be glib, but he's always interested in bands of outsiders, groups of people who have no business being in association, who are all, who are brought into circumstance and whose relationships explode in various ways and, and, change the lives of the characters who know them um in in one way he's always talking about exile but but in another sense um the film it's so interesting that the film asks us to consider exile while also um making us lust for a certain kind of exile i mean this is a an unbelievably gorgeous movie. And, right. and you know, for, in the beginning you have um, La Cinecita Studios, which is, you know, it's, it's just, it's this idyllic small Italian studios. The second act is all of, is all in this luxurious apartment with, with gorgeous views of, of Italy. And then the third act, I mean, you are, you are standing in the, azure waters of the Mediterranean and you're seeing these gorgeous statues and, the whole film is 
is paradise in different ways visually. Um, and yet it features such unbelievable loneliness. And in, in that way, it's such an interesting underscoring of the themes of the Odyssey, which of course takes place in, you know, gorgeous islands and features, you know, lotus eaters who are so, you know, so in paradise, drinking their drugs and lying on the islands and never want to leave. And there are goddesses and, you know, yeah, beautiful. I mean, in, in a sense, it is a remaking of the Odyssey. Beautiful people yeah. lost. Everyone's lost in this film. And as you say, there is this dramatic contrast of, 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 of Italian beauty, beautiful actors, beautiful music. And yet the contrast is, is the emptiness of the story and of the characters, the inner lives or the absence, it seems, almost of the inner lives of the people. The only one who, who, who appears to have any kind of inner life is, is Bardot herself. Yeah. And, she, she's a, and it's stressed that she isn't an intellectual. She, I think, worked in a store or a secretary. So there's a kind of reverse intellectual snobbery there where it's only the, the least educated person who has an inner life. Yes, but she also is wandering for the whole movie. I mean, she circumnavigates that apartment over and over and over again, like looking for a port where she can finally land. And right. she's in, unable to do that, you know, and has to move on to the next relationship in, in an attempt to do that. Um, so, you know, in, in this way, the film is the film is very much about about. I mean, it's it's been referred to as like a string of, uh, you know, metaphors, just a bunch of metaphors, you know, back to back to back to back. And in that way, it is. I mean, she's she's, you know, this goddess looking character, but she is actually more than anyone else are Odysseus. She's not one of right. the. She's not yeah. Calypso, she's not Circe, she's not one of the beautiful women waiting on the islands for the hero. She is the one who is looking for a homeland or um, has been has been displaced from the home and the spouse that she knew. Um, he is with her, unlike Penelope to Odysseus, but he's not the same person. And so she is she's looking for the original man. She's Bobby. She's lost. <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating film. Yeah. A lot of people are going to be listening to this and scratching their head and thinking, do I really want to see it? Um, I'm not <laughs> sure. A lot of people would be really bored. I mean, Olivia, how do we explain the different response? I mean, the critical reception, uh, Colin McKay, The Sight and Sound, uh, described it uh, as the greatest work of art produced in post-war Europe. He was probably one of the people who made it. Sight and Sound's movie, uh, greatest movie ever made, uh, whereas the New York Times called uh, the film Luxuriant, as you suggested, but wrote that Goddard could put his talents to more intelligent and illuminating use. And, and he may have a point. How do you explain these different critical responses? And some people will go to the film and love it, and some people will fall asleep, and some people <laughs> will walk out and think, I'm not wasting my time on such uh, intellectual drivel, such pretense. How, how, how do we make sense of the, are, are profoundly and and I have to admit that I have all those responses. <laughs> yeah, um, the thing about all Godard films is I think it's easy to have that complicated response. I mean, one of the things Godard plays with is literally audience expectations, and he knows that even when he's dealing with themes that are, I've said this word a lot, not to, not to bring Oppenheimer into this, but uh, themes that are explosive. No, bring him um, in. We, everyone's welcome in this. 
Everyone, Oppenheimer, Everyone's Barbie, Jean Luc Godard. Yeah, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Godard, they're all in their own separate movie. And this is the movie. Um, but um, the thing that's so interesting about Godard is that he takes things that you think will be enormously riveting and he turns them on their heads and shows their workings and the slowness and the methods and the and and all of this requires great patience um it's like you know it's like going to a magic show but instead of watching the trick you're watching the magician set up the trick and explain the trick and put the trick together and then when he pulls off the trick somehow it's still mm. not but you've had this long period where you've been forced to try to understand the process that leads to the trick. And for some, this is so exciting because Godard really does like to show his hand. He likes to tell you what he's talking about. I mean, even in Contempt, which, which you know, was billed as this relationship epic with two huge stars and filmed in Cinemascope on the luxurious Mediterranean coastline, you have a shot of a film studio where you feature the films, as, as many have said, the film's real star, the cinematographer Raul Coutard, operating the camera, and he is the focal point of this shot. Godard is literally showing you how the beautiful movie gets made. But he's slow to unveil exactly how technology and narrative and atmosphere actually lead to um, these exciting moments. So in some ways it feels punishing because you're waiting around for the exciting things to happen. Well, we're being, I mean, and I don't think he's shy about this. God, I would say he's punishing us as the viewer. Absolutely. But also uh, he is having fun. And if you're the kind of person. His kind of fun though. I'm not oh, sure everyone. Yeah. It's if you're the kind, not a necessarily masochist cinema viewer, but if you're the kind of viewer who really wants to get inside the head of a filmmaker, it's just, it's such a playground. Godard is saying, "Come on in." If you're the kind of filmmaker, if you're the kind of audience who um, would rather be shown the how and the method and the complicated stuff after all the exciting stuff, well, then maybe you're you're less in luck. I mean, Godard famously said that. Film, uh, cinema, uh, all movies should have a beginning, middle, and end, and not necessarily in that order, which is, I think, a perfect encapsulation of what he does. He shuffles things, he shows his process sometimes where you're not expecting it, and sometimes he gives you the exact opposite of what you want to see. And then when he gives you what you want, it's sort of diluted, it's not necessarily tainted unless you're disappointed, but it is messed with. You can't experience the pure adrenaline of an explosion between this domestic couple because you've watched them walk around their apartment for like 40 minutes. You've seen them go to the bathroom and open a Coke and try on wigs and fight. And there are some titillating things like Brigitte Bardot lays down on the rug or whatever, but it's not an, it's not an efficient um, condensed tight burst. It is a long, slow road like in life. There, um, you know, life is not movies. Life is not all exciting things. Life is a lot of nitty gritty, sometimes even boring things on the road to uh, these exciting blowouts moments or, or shocks. And uh, you just have to deal with that. And that's sort of what Godard is saying. 